It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. As the de facto music director of the Rolling Stones during the last 40 years of touring, George's Chuck Lavelle not only handled keyboard duties, he frequently took charge of the music on stage as a sort of conductor. In performance, he kept in eye contact with the late Charlie Watts, since any signal by the music director has to be telegraphed by the drummer. They had a unique relationship, and the loss of the legendary drummer hit him hard. But the show goes on and the Rolling Stones and Lavelle will be performing at Mercedes-Benz Stadium on November 11th. Bo Emerson spoke with Lavelle about the Stones and about his tree farming life just outside of Macon. And he's here to bring us that conversation. Welcome, Bo. How's it going, Shane? It's going great. Well, um, you know, we, we always like to talk to Chuck Lavelle. He's a fascinating guy and, you know, he has many things going on, but, you know, Everybody always wants to talk about the Stones, I'm sure. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, I barely mentioned his, uh, uh, you know, his whole Capricorn uh, era and his uh, tenure with the Allman Brothers, which um, to me is, is almost as interesting as anything else he's done. Right. Yeah. And he, I mean, even after that, he had his own band, Sea Level. Right. Uh, it's done, you know, he's done lots of things over the years, including, of course, that I mentioned his tree farm down uh, near Macon uh, with his wife. And, and there's a, a, a documentary that's on Hulu uh, 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 about him that just came out this summer. I think it's called uh, Chuck Lavelle Tree Man. You guys should check out. Uh, but uh, he's done a lot for, uh, for conservation as well as uh, just being a rock and roll uh, pianist and uh, which, which led him to the, to the best line of the, 
uh, of the interview, which I, which he saved until the end. And so I saved it for the end of the piece also. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we'll get to hear that too, from, <laughs> straight from Chuck Lavelle. Um, but uh, of course, you know, the Stones lost Charlie Watts recently. And, you know, that was uh, a big blow to rock and roll in general. Um, and of course, I'm sure to the band itself. But uh, well, and, and, you know, I, I figured that the, the two of them uh, had to watch each other all the time on stage. Uh, once he told me that there was this, that he really had to sometimes conduct endings or, you know, he would look at Charlie and Charlie would look at him and they knew they were going to go to the bridge then. And so that's a uh, uh, basically two guys running in the show. And then then he has to uh, uh, they got to start all over again. I mean, that's just the practical side of it. Obviously, there's the emotional side of it as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the Rolling Stones have been going for for so, so many years. And of course, Chuck has been with them for, for many decades now, too. Um, and uh, I, it's it's amazing. They're still still out there touring and, and still playing shows that that sell huge amounts of tickets. They they're well, they don't seem to be slowing down no matter how old they get. Uh, he says he has a hard time keeping up with them. And he's the youngster in the bunch. He's only 69. Right. You know, the rest of them are 74, 77. They're, there's a bunch of old guys in this in this band, but they're um, they're not dead yet. Yeah, well, it gives us all hope for the future that, uh, <laughs> that maybe we can uh, be as active as they are at that age. I'm sure we can. And when we go for a beer, I'm sure everyone will point their cameras at us and say, hey, look, Shane just went for a beer in Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, Bo's referencing a, a <laughs> recent photo that was taken of Mick Jagger. Uh, at some little little tavern in, in North Carolina where apparently no one actually recognized him. The tavern, um, by the way, was called the Thirsty Beaver, just so you the know. The Thirsty Beaver, okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an interesting tidbit. But anyway, well, uh, Chuck Lavelle, he's a fascinating guy and uh, we always love to talk to him. And uh, I'm so glad that you got to talk to him again ahead of this uh, Stone show that uh, you will also be going to, right? I am going to the show, and uh, it was very cool talking to uh, Chuck. Where uh, he was at his farm uh, down near Macon, um, and you could hear his dogs barking in the background. And he was getting ready to get his chainsaw out and go work, cutting yeah. down some deadfalls, cutting up some deadfalls and things like that. And I thought to myself, that's a dangerous thing to do with those fingers. That are right. <laughs> he said, I, "I take care of my fingers." Yeah, I'm sure he does because. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I bet they, they, they certainly help pay the bills. I, I, I feel quite certain. That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Well, uh, thanks so much for, uh, for doing this for us and uh, for bringing us this conversation with Chuck. Uh, is there uh, thank else? you. Anything else we should know before we go? I think that? just uh, stick around to the end. That's the best line. All right. <laughs> uh, let's hear from Chuck Lavelle. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a treat. We have Chuck Lavelle, Birmingham native, Macon resident, a tree farmer, a uh, co-founder of the Mother Nature Network, and a longtime uh, music director for the Rolling Stones with us. Thank you so much, Chuck, for joining us. It's a real pleasure, Bo. I'm looking forward to playing Atlanta pretty soon here. Well, well we're looking forward to having you here. And, and uh it's going to be uh, a little bit different 
this time, I'm sure. And I was going to ask you about playing, playing shows without Charlie Watts. Well, as you can imagine, we all are still pining and, and very sad over the loss of Charlie. Um, we knew that he was ill. We knew that he was not going to be able to make this tour. And he had already given Steve Jordan his blessing uh, to do that. And so we all expected a full recovery uh, for Charlie. That's what we were told by the doctor. But, we, you know, it was going to take some time. And then as I'm in the car headed to the airport uh, for rehearsals, the news came uh, that he had passed away. And it, it was just devastating. And I had to hide my face several times in the airport, just getting so emotional. But, uh, you know, we Charlie Watts would never want to be the reason this band would stop. I can tell you that. We all knew that uh, full well. And so, you know, we, we took a day or two... Uh, to just talk about Charlie and, and share some stories and, and grieve. And, uh, and then we, we carried on and that's what we've done. We honor Charlie, we celebrate him at every show, um, visually and with uh, a little short uh, bit of comments that Mick gives to the audience. So um, he's still with us, you know, he, he definitely has a presence at every show. And let me comment on Steve Jordan. You know, Steve sure. and Charlie were friends um, for a long, long time. And, it, and as you know, Bo, uh, Steve worked with Keith on his solo projects. Expensive so, yeah. yeah, exactly. And he's, he's been part of the Stones family. So definitely the logic choice. You know, Steve is, is a fantastic drummer, uh, a slightly more aggressive style of drumming and so that uh, we're adjusting to him, he's adjusting to us, but it's really, really working out well. You know, when you, when you looked at Charlie Watts playing, he looked like the most relaxed individual you would ever see on stage in front of 50,000 people. Um, I, I guess it's slightly different when you look at Steve now. Absolutely, yeah. Charlie had, here's the thing about Charlie. He got a very big sound because he used big drumsticks, heavy drumsticks, but he had a light touch. So that delicate touch, but with those heavy sticks made for this, you know, monstrous sound, it, it was quite an unusual thing. Now, Steve uh, plays a lot harder, physically harder. And, and uh, as I said earlier, a slightly more aggressive style of drumming, um, but it's serving the band very well. And here's the thing, you know, Steve did an amazing amount of, of homework. When we were rehearsing, he recorded on his iPhone everything we did. And he would go back to the hotel and listen and adjust the next day if, if adjustments were needed. And, and he certainly was very familiar with certain parts that have to be there, you know, on the drums that Charlie did that are so vital and important. So he, he studied, he studied hard. And he's a musicologist anyway, Steve. Uh, uh, you know, he can talk about uh, the history of jazz, the history of uh, rock and roll, the history of soul and R&B. Uh, so he's very, very well-rounded as a musician. Now, you've uh, been the de facto, is the word they use, music director for decades uh, and have uh, been on every Stones record since 1983. When you're the music director, you're not just taking notes on the order of songs and things like that. What, what does that involve? 
Well, it's a, a moniker that uh, sort of morphed over a long period of time. It started really back in uh, 1989 when we did the Steel Wheels tour. And uh, my first tour, as you probably know, Bo, was in 1982. And there was no touring between 82 and 89. So that was a pretty long gap, even though we did record two albums during that time. But here's the thing. In 82, uh, every night was the same set. We didn't change any songs from show to show. And so when we grouped to start rehearsals uh, in 89 for Steel Wheels, and it wasn't just me, but I certainly made the point, uh, hey guys, you know, you got a deep well of material and we need to explore that. And we need to bring some deep tracks into the set. And they all agreed. And so, I began taking these notes every time we would work up a song that we hadn't played in a long time or the band hadn't played in a long time. And I would chart out the song uh, by hand, uh, make any notes. Did we change the arrangement for any reason? Uh, was there horns on it? What were the horn parts? Uh, were there background vocals? What were they? Uh, and so forth. And so every time we would do a song, I would make this chart and make these notes. And that began and has gone throughout my whole career, almost 40 years with the band. So now I have these two encyclopedic notebooks uh, that all have plastic sheets with my handwritten notes in there. Uh, and, you know, it's like uh, from A to M and, and then, you know, the, rest, the other book goes to Z. And uh, we do use that as a reference from time to time. If we hadn't done a song and we can look back and I can help. So that, you know, it, it gave, the, Chuck knows the bridge. Chuck knows what, what was the key? Where does, where's the solo go, Chuck? You know, so I began to, you know, kind of be the go-to guy for those issues. And then it began to translate into the stage, especially when Charlie was alive, you know, Charlie was a jazz guy. And so sometimes as a rock and roller, he wasn't sure when the bridge was coming or when, there was gonna be a change of some type. And so he would physically look at me to give signals, hand signals, nods, you know, uh, about when these changes were, were coming. And so now with Steve, not so much, cause Steve has a great head for arrangements. He knows rock and roll. And so I don't, I don't direct him as much as I directed Charlie, but I still do direct some endings here and there and direct a few things. Well, that's pretty darn responsible position, isn't it? Well, you know, hopefully I help keep the train on the track sometimes. And and look, this is the Rolling Stones, and you can expect a derailment every now and then. <laughs> you know, I think about um, the, the, you know, the keyboard players, Nicky Hopkins, Ian Stewart, Billy Preston. Uh, you were basically um, auditioning with Ian Stewart right next to you back in, uh, what, 81 or something like that? That's right, yeah. What was that like? Well, you know, let me uh, give you the story. It, the, I had had the band Sea Level. Sea Level had broken up. Um, I had a little trio at the time. This would have been 1980 going into 81. And uh, we had, my wife had inherited this property. And so I began this interest in forestry and the environment. And I started studying that. The trio I had really wasn't going anywhere. The phone wasn't ringing for recording sessions. And I came home one afternoon and uh, just wanted to vent 
to my wife, Rose Lane. And I said, Rosie, you know, I'm never going to stop music, but the phone's not ringing for sessions. This little trio is really not going anywhere. Uh, I'm really interested in the land and what we're doing. So maybe I should just focus on that. And, you know, I'm going to keep my chops up and practice. And so she listened very intently and patiently. And then finally she said, well, Chuck, guess what? The Rolling Stones called you today. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was a joke. You know, I did. I, I said, honey, I don't need this right now. You know, I, I'm serious. <laughs> she said, Chuck, I'm serious. Here's the number they called an hour ago. Now go, go down. And, and I did. And it was eventually Ian Stewart that I got on the phone with. And I was flabbergasted. I said, well, Stu, yeah, man, are you kidding me? I, of course I want to come up for an audition. I've got a little gig with my trio this weekend. Uh, can I make it on Sunday or Monday? Well, we'd really like to have you there tomorrow. <laughs> man, so I, I had to call the club. And of course, they were very supportive. You know, go, man, go. You know, it's a great opportunity. And, <laughs> and it was supposed to be a one-day audition. I stayed for three days. And everything went great. And I thought I had the gig. But I came back home. The phone didn't ring for quite some time. Finally, Stu called me and he said, Chuck, everybody loves you, um, but they, they're going to keep uh, Ian McClagan for this tour. Uh, of course, some of your listeners will know that uh, McClagan was in the faces with Ronnie Wood. So there was a personal relationship there. And Mac had also done the previous tour with the band. So, um, you know, they kept Mac for the 81 tour. Uh, but interestingly, they came and did an unannounced show in Atlanta at the Fox Theater during that tour. And Stu called me up a, a few days before and he said, we're coming to your backyard. Would you like to come up and have a bash with the band? Yeah, I'd love that. So, uh, you know, I came up and uh, it was great to see the guys again. I think I sat in on maybe three or four songs in the middle of the set. Uh, and, and it was just fantastic. And then at the end of that tour, Stu called me back and he said, we're going to do Europe next year and we want you to go. So that was the beginning of my official duties with the band. That uh, must have been somewhat, uh, somewhat exciting. <laughs> it was. It was such a thrill. And, you know, I'll, I'll share this with you. I've always been kind of a goal-oriented person. My dad was very much that way and he kind of, pass that thought down to me. And so when I decided to make a career out of playing the piano, um, I set a couple of goals. And one goal was to be in a really great band, um, hopefully a successful band by the age of 20, and then to go to another level by the age of 30. And, and I was able to, to make that. You know, it, it, I was 20 when I joined the Allman Brothers Band. And I had just turned 30 when uh, I officially started work with the Stones. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. And we ought to say that uh, when you joined the Allman Brothers Band, you laid down one of the best piano solos ever recorded in rock and roll music uh, in Jessica. And I, I know that song uh, is among your favorites, but it's probably among the favorites of a lot of other people out there. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Dickie Betts. You know, Dickie, <laughs> that was, was Dickie's song. Uh, he brought it to the band for the Brothers and Sisters uh, record when I started working with the brothers. And, um, you know, they were gracious to ask me, hey, you know, th this is our instrumental for the album. Uh, we usually do an instrumental on every record and, and we want to feature you. And so, you know, I was happy to help work on the arrangement for it. And uh, and it was just a real thrill. And, you know, it it came together quite nicely. And, and uh, thankfully, people still listen to it. Oh, yeah. Now, I want to uh, ask about uh, the uh, this is the 40th uh, anniversary of Tattoo You. And so there's this big package that's been uh, um, uh, pr uh, promoted and, and re-released. But uh, I don't think it's got any um, uh, Chuck Lavelle on it. I think that was before you were in the studio with him, isn't that right? That is correct, yes. Uh, although they did pull out four or five um, unreleased tracks, uh, two of which we did in rehearsal, one of which we have played in public um, on the first three shows. Uh, and that's interestingly a cover by the, the Shy Lights, if you remember the Shy Lights. Right. Yeah. It's called uh, Troubles Are Coming. Uh -huh. And it's, it's, a, it's got a, a really cool little uh, beat to it. And, and it's fun. So we've, we've tested that one a little bit. And the other one is called, um, uh, what is it? Um, uh, uh, something about the, of love. I can't remember the title right now. But uh, we've rehearsed that one. But we haven't brought it to the, uh, to the stage yet. I think we will before the tour's out. And then there, there's some other tracks. Interestingly, one is a reggae version of Start Me Up. <laughs> living, in, living in the Heart of Love. That's the name of the song. Living in the Heart of Love. And, and, but a reggae version of Start Me Up, is it's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, you all supposedly rehearsed 80 tunes uh, to, be, uh, uh, to be ready for the show. Were any of them not in the uh, Chuck Lavelle Encyclopedia of Rolling Stones? Uh, tablature or what so what is this man did you sneak into the rehearsals and, and <laughs> how do you know all this information i uh, have my sources <laughs> well you're a journalist so okay um well you know i mean i'm trying to think of uh we've brought 19th nervous breakdown uh, to the stage uh that goes way way back as you know uh and we had rehearsed that song in the past even back when Bill Wyman was still around, you know, for in Steel Wheels era, but we never brought it to the stage for whatever reason. And uh, this time around, I don't know if it was Steve's drumming, maybe that you know he he kind of pushed uh, very hard on that song, and and it sounds great. And so that's been a fun one to bring in. Uh, Get off my cloud. Of course, we've done that in the last few tours occasionally, but that's a good one. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, we did go deep. I mean, um, I'm trying to think of some of the uh, more rare ones, uh, Mixed Emotions, which was on Steel Wheels, and uh, we've rarely played that. We haven't brought that to the stage. But, you know, when you're rehearsing 80 songs and you know that only 19 are going to make it to the stage, uh, that, that's the way you, you have to start constructing the set, you know. Well, I'm guessing with some of those old ones, you had to uh, you had to get out the pen and paper and, uh, yeah. and uh, write down a couple of more arrangements. 
Absolutely. And I had to uh, write, you know, these unreleased tracks like uh, Troubles Are Coming and uh, Living in the Heart of Love. I, I had to chart those out and, and add to the to the book. Uh, but yeah, you know, I had to bring some of those pieces of paper out. And uh, my, my technician is a great guy named uh, Kurt Wolock. Uh, Kurt, give me the sheet on Troubles. Uh, give me the sheet on this. It rocks off, uh, you know. So uh, he, he has those handy and he can pop it up to me on, on the uh, keyboard rig pretty quickly. Now we should tell the folks listening that uh, uh, you are uh, on a brief break right now and you're back in Georgia. Um, and I take it you're down on the farm right there. You bet, man. It's been glorious. I got here day before yesterday, late in the evening, and uh, the weather has been amazing. Uh, it's just so great to you know, to be out here in the country and uh, took a nice ride around on my four wheeler yesterday to check out all the territory. And it's, it, we've had a lot of rain, as you know, and so uh, the vegetation looks fantastic and uh, all my uh, forest and trees are, are growing nicely. So it's great to be here for a minute and enjoy that before I have to go back out. So how many acres do you have now? We have 4,000 acres now, and uh, that's not all contiguous by any means. The largest contiguous tract is about 2,800 acres. And then we have some outlying tracts that vary in size from uh, 050 to 150, 200, 300 acres here and there. So you've been on the chainsaw all day and all night. <laughs> uh, actually, we will be on the chainsaw later today. Uh, uh -huh. I... I actually have, you know what, it's going to wind up being tomorrow, but uh, I have a good friend of mine that's a logger, and I had, I guess it was three years ago, we had a drought, and I lost several really nice hardwood trees along the road that goes from our home to our lodge, and what we call the Bullard House, which is a historic 1835 farmhouse, and uh, so it's a little bit more than a chainsaw can handle. So my logger agreed to come and cut these dead trees down so we can stack them up. And then I can begin to uh, pretty up the entrance way, if you will. Uh, this next season, when I get off tour, I'll be planting a lot of uh, ornamental trees and different trees to, to make the entrance between the, our house and the place that we house our guests. Uh, to make it look really nice. So some dogwoods and cherry trees and that kind of thing. I just want to make sure you had on those gloves just in case that chainsaw gets out of control because you need those fingers. Well, you know, people ask me, Bo, does Lloyd's of London insure your hands? You know, do you? No, man, you know, common sense insures my hands. Uh, I love the physical work. I'm never going to give that up. You know, I, I, I love I, I try to stay in shape anyway, but, you know, hauling around a chainsaw and cutting wood and chopping firewood and all that is fantastic exercise. And, and I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it very carefully. So don't all worry. right. All right. Good. Good. Now, you are a co-founder of the Mother Nature Network, which uh, recently uh, got bought uh, and uh, got uh, uh, put together with uh, Tree Hugger. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but back uh, back a while ago, y'all uh, sponsored the uh, White House Correspondence Jam. Um, and I, I'm just curious whether that's going to ever happen again. It sort of disappeared for a while. 
Well, it was so fun. And, and just to elaborate a little bit on what it was, of course, you know exactly what it was, but you have the White House Correspondents Dinner every year up in Washington, D.C. And so my partner, Joel Babbitt, said, you know, what if we uh, put together a show uh, the night before the White House dinner, uh, a correspondence dinner, and, and call it the White House Jam, and we'll invite uh, journalists that have, you know, a lot of journalists have bands, and you were participating in it, uh, and, and then we escalate it to where, okay, we'll still do that, but let's, let's find a headliner or two. One year, we had my friend Mike Mills from uh, REM, the bass player, and uh, JB, the lead singer and guitar player from Widespread Panic, and myself uh, headline it. One year we had Billy Bob Thornton's band, the Boxmasters, uh, to headline. One year we had the, the Bacon Brothers, Kevin and Michael <laughs> Bacon, and they were great, man, I gotta tell you. Uh, so that was, it was a wonderful tradition. Uh, you're right, a company called Dot Dash bought both properties, the Mother Nature Network and treehugger.com, and they combined them together and just kept the treehugger name. I'm still a consultant uh, with the organization. They're doing a great job, um, you know, wonderful environmental information and news uh, that you can get on treehugger.com. And uh, we'll see, you know, of course, we've been in the COVID era, and even if right. If we hadn't sold, I think it would have been difficult to, to have that, um, you know, the last couple of years. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'll be talking to Tree Hugger and my friends there to see if we can't revive it. Now, the, the uh, up until a little while ago, you had a, 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 a man from Georgia, Sonny Purdue, in charge of USDA, and you were uh, you had sort of an inside line into uh, agricultural policy uh, from your fellow uh, uh, Georgia resident. Uh, that's uh, uh, that's uh, different now with Mr. Vilsack in uh, in charge. But I wonder, uh, uh, do you still stay involved there, and do you get uh, a chance to chat at all with those folks? Absolutely. Um, I knew Secretary Vilsack back when you know he was in uh, previous administrations, and he uh, he and I were at several different meetings together and whatnot. So. I've yet to communicate with him directly uh, since he's been in this administration, but I feel like I will be. Um, and all due to uh, Governor and Secretary Purdue, uh, and he did, I think he did some very good things for agriculture, but not as much for forestry. You know, he concentrated on agriculture, as you know, and in, in that era when farmers were hurting, uh, that administration uh, came up with a lot of funding uh, to keep farmers going. So, you know, I appreciate that. And I think that's great. We love the American farmer. But uh, forestry got a little bit neglected. And I would like to see that uh, come back into the picture, especially now that we're beginning to talk more about climate change, global warming. Uh, forestry can play a tremendous part in that. And of course, we all see the devastation of wildfires in California and other states out west. And we certainly need to address that um, going forward. Uh, we were just in California and man, oh man, you know, they've, they set a record every year about the largest fires, the most devastating fires. Yeah. I have a fledgling television program that you probably know about Bo called America's Forests with Chuck Lavelle. We're on PBS. 
And we did a segment in California, uh, I guess it was a little over a year ago, where we went to paradise, if you recall that horrible fire, uh, the campfire, they called it, devastated that whole community. And I've never seen anything like that. I mean, and in addition to seeing the devastation of the fire, this was at a time when you had uh, the incredible heat going on and they were right. rationing electricity, right? And so we're right. driving through paradise and there's no electricity except for those that may have a generator running. And it was eerie. It was just very strange. And, you know, we have to address this, man. We have to uh, use some techniques to reduce these terrible wildfires that are happening out there. And uh, I'm hoping this administration will be uh, forward thinking in that. Well, uh, I'm hoping the same thing. And uh, the uh, I wonder whether y'all are using any sort of um, uh, uh, methods to counterbalance the uh, enormous energy that it takes to stage a tour like this, whether you're trading off any uh, 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 any of those, uh, you know, renewable energy credits and such. Yes, I'm working with an organization now called One Ticket, One Tree. And that is it's pretty easy to understand. It's exactly what uh, the, the concept is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, anybody that would buy a ticket to, and it doesn't have to be rock and roll shows. It could be anything, you know, sports events. Uh, and this is a, a very new concept. Uh, we've had a few Zoom calls about it. Um, I've presented it to AEG, uh, the promoter that, uh, that sponsors the Rolling Stones and other uh, big name artists. Uh, and I, I think this can be a tremendous thing. It's, it's very simple. You know, you, you have to do some calculation. You know, what is it going to cost? Uh, uh, how much can we put from that ticket towards uh, reforestation? Uh, but the, you know, the, the, the actual work is not that difficult. The, the land to find, to plant is not that difficult. Uh, the team that I'm working with has all of that laid out. And there's a lot of other organizations that we can call on for assistance with that. Uh, you know, it's new. It, it's not out there yet, so to speak. But, you know, when I had my first conversations, I said, guys, let's go for the low hanging fruit from people like Jackson Brown uh, and, and others, Bonnie Raitt and, and other artists that we know are sympathetic. And, you know, let's talk to Leonardo DiCaprio. Let's talk to uh, these other movie people, actors and, and big movers and shakers uh, that would be sympathetic to this idea. And I think it's going to come around. All right. And so I got one last question, which is, I wonder whether you were on hand at the Thirsty Beaver when uh, <laughs> had his famous beer, because somebody had to take that picture. I'm going to tell you what, man, that thing made the rounds, didn't it? My heavens, it was like <laughs> two weeks. That was a story, you know, amazing. You know, Mick Jagger goes to this little dive bar and nobody recognizes him. And he goes out in the outdoor garden area and, uh, I don't know if it was uh, his security guy or who took the picture. No, I wasn't with him. I, I went to a different bar. Okay. <laughs> and my, my, but my picture didn't make it into all the papers and uh, on TV and everything. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you were, uh, maybe they figured out who you were, were cause you didn't have your ball cap on, you know? And so, you well, 
But I tell you what I have been working on, Bo, and I know you're aware of it, uh, is the documentary that came out just a few months ago called Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. You know, it, 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 there's three themes to the documentary. It runs about uh, a little over 90 minutes. Uh, it is available on Blu-ray and DVD, and you can also stream it on uh, Hulu and Amazon Prime. Uh, and again, it's Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man. But the three themes are, of course, my work in music, and as we have been talking, my work in, in environmentalism and in forestry. And the third theme is a love story. Rose Lane and I have been married uh, over 48 years now. And when people ask me, well, why did you want to do this thing? And that, the answer is really I wanted to do it just to have a document for my future generations. You know, we have four grandchildren now. Uh, and I also wanted it to be a snippet of time. And the time frame is kind of like from the 70s uh, on up to the present day. Uh, and uh, so it's done quite well. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We have the interviews, all the four Rolling Stones were interviewed. Um, Eric Clapton, John Mayer, uh, David Gilmore, uh, you know, uh, it, it, a, a lot of folks that I've worked with through the years and the interviews are a lot of fun. And then the footage of us uh, in the woods and Rose Lane and I together, there's a beautiful segment when we're in Paris uh, on a boat floating down the Seine River. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad people are picking up on it. And that's been a lot of fun to promote. Well, it's been a lot of fun to get a chance to chat with you. And I appreciate you taking time with us. Uh, watch those fingers while you're out on the farm there. <laughs> and and uh, we look forward to seeing you in Atlanta on the 11th. Well, it's going to be, you know, every time we do Atlanta, the last time was 2015. And and uh, it's like playing in my backyard, man. You know, the, the reaction of, and the introduction is always very strong and, and very heartwarming. And, uh, you know, you'll appreciate this, Bo. When we played in 2015, I thought, you know, this this is likely the last time I'll be with the Rolling Stones in Atlanta. And so I put a, a book together. Actually, a friend of mine put a book together uh, showing when the trucks came in uh, to the stadium to start the construction. And then the construction of the stage goes and and then, you know, uh, some friends that uh, gathered and fans and whatnot, and, and then some shots of the actual show. And I thought, oh, this is a great remembrance. And, and you know, uh, I'll probably never play again. Here we are. We're going to get to do it again. So I'm excited. Well, uh, being that you're one of the youngsters in the group, uh, 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 you, you, may, uh, you may outlast everybody except Keith Richards, of course. <laughs> of course. I think it's time we all started thinking about what kind of world we're going to leave for Keith Richards and <laughs> Wilson. <laughs> right. Very important. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Chuck, thank you so much, sir. Have a fantastic day today. A pleasure, Bo. You take care. See you in Atlanta. Yes, sir. All right. Over 15 years, the Real Housewives Reality franchise has become Bravo's most expansive accomplishment. 
spawning 11 series stateside and at least 15 around the world. It shows no signs of dying with Bravo this week announcing its latest, The Real Housewives of Dubai. It seemed like a no-brainer to turn classic scenes of artificial leg throwing, wig pulling, and table tossing into an oral history. Housewives superfan and entertainment journalist Dave Quinn jumped aboard and interviewed a whopping 112 of the women on nine of the key shows along with 34 notable executives involved in the production. The result? Not all diamonds in rosé, part of Andy Cohen books. Rodney Ho has the story on the radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. Since its opening in August 2017, Mercedes-Benz Stadium has been home to the NFL's Atlanta Falcons and MLS's Atlanta United, and hosted an impressive list of college football kickoff and playoff games. It was the site of Super Bowl 52 two years ago, and increasingly, the -the state-of-the-art venue is also a major concert destination. That element of the stadium will come into major focus again over the next two weeks with the two-night ATL Live concert series on November 5th and 6th, and a no-filter tour appearance by the greatest rock and roll band in the world, the Rolling Stones, on November 11th. Find out more on AJC.com. Hometown Boy, a southern play filled with juicy secrets and quick wit, receiving its world premiere November 3rd at Actors Express, begins with a young man returning to his father's home after a decade, only to find the doors locked. He spends much of the first scene trying to find his way in. Playwright Kiko Green, a Marietta native, has returned to Georgia for the first time in 12 years to present the work, and her homecoming has been more welcoming. Read Arts ATL's preview of this new play on AJC.com as part of our partnership with the nonprofit organization that plays a critical role in educating and informing audiences about Metro Atlanta's arts and culture. Like his frenetic drumming style, Stuart Copeland can't stay anywhere too long. Professionally, he straddles musical worlds. A rebellious rocker one moment and an opera composer the next, Copeland leaps from genre to genre as quickly and deftly as the rhythm takes him. His most indelible mark comes from his tenure as Stickman for the Police, a rocking alternative trio with priceless pop sensibilities that helped define the soundtrack of the 1980s. He'll be bringing his Police Deranged for Orchestra to Atlanta Symphony Hall. The tour features reimagined police cuts from the mind of Copeland, performed live with a core band and a full symphonic orchestra. You'll find our interview with Copeland on AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach. Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. 
follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.